we'll we'll get there eventually again i think it'll it's just going to take much longer than anyone is probably feels like or is comfortable with but i'd rather take a little bit longer and 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 sort of do it safely than go back into another shutdown another lockdown which uh, another one i don't know <laughs> i don't know how many people can sort of face that this is the deep in the weeds podcast i'm anthony huckstep with the evolution of our culinary landscape came the advent of venues that blurred the lines between wine bar and restaurant these venues epitomised the new wave of hospitality down under. A casual wine bar swagger, comfortable, at times rowdy atmosphere, but where quality food and wine helped grease the wheels of social discourse. What will happen to this beautiful evolution of our industry? Almay Jordan is the chef and co-owner of Melbourne's Old Palm Liquor and Neighbourhood Wine. Almay, how are you? I'm well, thanks. Thanks for having me. Well, it's good to good to catch up. Um, how are things at the moment in Melbourne? You're um, heading towards the possible opening up of um, society again if all things go to plan. How, how are you feeling? Good. I think um, I think everyone's starting to to try and feel that that light at the end of the tunnel now. Um, <laughs> everyone's well and truly over it. Um, yeah, just trying to trying to reach that last bit of positivity um, to kind of keep us going for another two weeks. I think today, tomorrow. Yeah, it's about two weeks now, I think. What's this period of time been like? You've got two venues in Melbourne and you've had to manage both of those through this um, tough time. Has, has the experience been different for the different venues? Um, uh, yes and no. I mean, I guess we we try to approach them with the same manner of thinking, um, but I guess we really wanted to differentiate them as online brands um, because we kind of needed to keep both going as, as separate entities. We never really considered sort of working from one kitchen or, or any of those sorts of things, um, which which has taken a lot of um, a lot of creativity and a lot of thinking on our feet and a lot of input from the staff at both venues um, because ultimately we relied on on these teams to kind of help us churn churn out the you know the takeaway and the and the and the sort of takeaway booze offering. So yeah, they're doing pretty different things. Um, neighborhood wines sort of in the first lockdown they were kind of doing more of the roasty thing roast meat thing that neighborhood is known for and it just it it was it was a mammoth effort and then uh we decided to in the second lockdown turn it into um more of a a pasta driven kind of um offering and the chefs that work there have worked in some some pretty good places um pasta sort of pasta driven places and already had the knowledge so we just sort of chipped out, got a pasta machine, and started started doing um, a few dishes, and it's worked pretty well for us. Um, and I think we were actually probably going to integrate something of that into our offering from there on. I mean, we'll never be a pasta restaurant because we're not really 
that Italian, so to speak. But um, I think we found something else to add to the repertoire at that restaurant, which which has been a good thing. And um, at Old Palm, I'm still doing some things off the grill, although I've learned some hard lessons about how much grill work you can do to order in a takeaway format. <laughs> so it's some really bad lessons. Um, and ultimately realized why people don't do that as it does takeaway offering. It's very expensive and it's very slow. Um, so there have been some really hard lessons. Um, but I think we've found our groove and we're just kind of sticking to it now until we can get back to um, some sort of whatever the whatever the normality will be after this. Yeah. Neighbourhood Wine was a place that you had already and Old Palm Liquor is a relatively new venue. What was it like sort of in given that it is a fairly new venue having to deal with this pandemic and um, keep it alive as so many restaurants find the first couple of years quite difficult to turn a profit? Mm, yeah, uh, rough, <laughs> I'd say. Um, neighborhood was was good because we had so many super loyal customers um, and we just um, we got a lot of love from them. Uh, but Old Palm, yeah, super new restaurant. We were lucky that it, it actually got a fair bit of attention when it opened. So we just needed to kind of work with that momentum and and really knuckle down and try, just try and sell sell things. We're very lucky with Old Palm that it has street frontage, which is the advantage that Neighborhood Wine never had. Um, and, yeah, there, there are people, because everyone's locked down and they're out for an hour or whatever every day so everyone goes for their for their walks or their exercise whatever they're allowed to do we actually got found by a whole lot more people who live here and never actually paid attention to what was in the streets around them because they go to the city all the time or they go elsewhere so we, we actually it's helped us in some way um from from a street frontage point of view that was a big a big plus and then we we delved pretty hard into online sales, and that's um, that's kind of buoyed us quite a bit as well, which has helped. Your venues are part of this amazing new wave of blurring the lines between wine bar and and restaurants. But what sort of challenges did you have in translating that into this sort of at home takeaway model? Um, I think less translation and more something totally different. Um, I mean, a wine bar is all about loads of people together drinking and having a good time and lots of noise. And all of a sudden, all of that's gone and, and you can't really recall that that memory or you can't really translate the feeling that you have in a wine bar or in a noisy space like, like our spaces are into any kind of offering that you're going to send home. So we basically just looked at um, for us, it was more like how can we sell what we already have, you know, with the resources we already have in the restaurants at a at a proper price point that that's going to work during lockdown. Um, and sort of what it, it, there was a lot of a lot of weeks of trying to figure out what are people looking for right now, what are they missing, um, what is already out there. I mean, the, you know, the nasty thing about this is we're all every restaurant is just trying to trying as hard as they can to sell stuff out there so we're all in competition obviously 
um, and 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 everyone's trying to put something out there that that'll sort of you know apply to some some niche in the market and yep we're just part of <laughs> another restaurant trying to do that and doing our doing our best to to still kind of resonate with people who liked what our brand um kind of meant to them i suppose being venues that veer towards being wine bars as much as restaurants you'd have had a lot of wine stock on premise as well as I know that you have um, a lot of keg wine as well. Was there some initiatives that you did um, during the lockdown to move some of that stock? Yeah, so so we had just gotten a massive a massive amount of keg wine, thousands and thousands of liters, before the first lock lockdown, and and then we got closed down, and we were like, we need a you know, like everywhere else, you're like, we're sitting on these open kegs and we're also sitting on thousands of litres of wine right next door. We need to sell this stuff. Um, so we came up with a sort of 20 buck Natty's litre liter wine kind of idea. And we just got pallets and pallets of, of litre bottles and literally just wrote what the wine was on the bottle and started started selling it and it it did really well it it did really well on instagram some things did really well that we never even planned like people just sort of really went for it and in the end we actually had to scramble to find um more wine from from guys out in um in the yarra valley and just whoever was was around us um and and in the end, we ended up buying. Um, we had to buy a van. Like I think it was an it, it was an ex ambulance, so that we could fit the pallets of bottles and keg wines in. Because it did so well, we just ended up buying. We bought a, another few thousand liters of wine, and we've actually moved an incredible amount of um, of, of natural wine, which is which is good. And it that's kind of really kept us going. Like that's that's. It's been a, a, the saving grace, and it's it's been an interesting thing to see how something like that has worked. It's you know we, we're selling our entire wine list, but that's sort of been the the, the major driver. That's yeah, I'd say. What was the impact on staff? I know that you employ many international staff, and um, you've have quite a you know different um, team in both kitchens. Was was the impact quite? brutal during this time on all of your staff and the sort of hours available for ones that you could hold on to yeah so um i don't i I don't know i don't know who it was not brutal for honestly more of it was just the mental impact of what the hell do we do um that you know that kind of hit everyone and, and and how quickly you had to think about trying to do something about it we um, we have about 50 people that we employ across both restaurants. And in the first week of the first lockdown, we had to stand down um, all of the part-down, all of the part-time employees, which was about half of that. So we paid out all their leave and everything we had owing them to make, you know, so that they had some money available to them straight away. Um, but that was it was a shitty time and it was so uncertain and it was it was really weird for everyone um luckily we could keep all our full-time staff on which was sort of the other half of the teams and we sort of 
built a new business in both places with with them. And then by this end of the second week, we got the part-timers back and sort of the end of the month, everyone was working again, which is good. So we got loads. We we really didn't lose that many people at all, like a handful in the end. Um, they've been really good at adapting to what we threw at them. It was a super, super hectic month um, that no one wants again. Um, and I think, yeah, I think what we ended up doing, what every, everyone's job changed, no one is doing what they want to, and some people decided that, you know what, this isn't for me, I don't want to be part of this, and, and they have sort of left. But in all in all, we've kept most of our staff. We didn't actually lose that many people at all. So we're super lucky in that regards. I understand you weren't always going to be a chef, that you wanted to be a botanist originally. Yes, I still do. I just don't know where I'm going to find the time, <laughs> to be quite honest. Um, yeah, I'm. it's a lifelong dream. I, I reckon I'll get it right at some stage. <laughs> it's, 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 my, it's my plants are my main passion apart from food. Um, but, yeah, that's – for now I'm interested in how I can, you know, use – cook with them and, and, and sort of grow some strange things in my backyard. I'm, I'm interested in particular varietals outside of cooking. So that's my sort of little side hobby. How did you get involved in the career of chefing? And I understand your first day was one of the most um, embarrassing of your life. Yes. Oh, I've, oh I think I've, I've tried to erase that from my memory every now and then. <laughs> I'm sorry. It comes back to... To haunt me. Yes, I think I just, I didn't eat or something. I, I, I think I've blocked out bits of it, honestly. Um, but yeah, I was super excited and there were still super long days that everyone was working. Like you rocked up, you know, super early in the morning and you just worked until the work was done, which was, you know, the end of the night. And I did. I just. I didn't eat, and I was overwhelmed, and it was a weird. Ex the kitchen was noisy, and the chefs were bloody scary, and the guy on the grill was terrifying, and I was. I was just like, "Wow, what have I gotten myself into?" Um, and I was kind of hiding in the lot. I think I was on the larder section, obviously, I suppose, and um, and I fainted. Oh, I knew I was going to faint, so I tried to like get away, and I don't know somewhere get out of the kitchen. But I didn't get very far and I fainted and I fainted into the head chef's arms, which is up there with one of the most embarrassing things you can do, I suppose. And then and then I I didn't wake up. I woke up. They took me to a restaurant table and I like woke up and it was like the head chef and the sous chef staring at me like super worried and I was like, oh, my soul, this is the worst. I can't come back to work. This is the worst thing ever. But um they they laughed it off and they were they were very good chefs. They were very nice and they were like, you know, it's fine, this happens a lot. It doesn't happen a lot, I know. <laughs> now. <laughs> and um yeah, I just had to just sort of work through it. I think they gave me like a a Coca-Cola or something and I carried on. But um I won't ever let myself live it down, to be quite honest. Well that experience didn't prevent you from building an amazing career in the industry. What's been some of the real highlights for you? Um, I think I think the fact that I that I've been able to cook in a lot of different places, um, and a lot of different cities 
I think I've been really lucky uh, doing chef school in in South Africa in, in Stellenbosch. Um, a lot of the times, your prospects are sort of just South Africa, and, and whilst I super loved that, and the intention was the intention was always going back to South Africa and and cooking there. Um, I I had the opportunity when sort of South Africans could still get working holiday visas in in the UK to go and work to go and work in London um and and I I just got in the gap like I don't think it's really possible anymore for South Africans to do that um and and work in the UK and the chef I had worked for before in South Africa um he was working with the South African um with the government and and sort of the all the embassies around the world and and even while I was in London he would sort of give me a call and go hey I've got this gig in in Moscow because the <laughs> the embassy wants to show the local you know I guess a Russian delegation they want to show them how to cook with ostrich wow I think ostrich was our main thing that we that we that, that he cooked with and and I would fly from London and he would he would fly from South Africa and we had this really weird week in Moscow cooking ostrich um, <laughs> and that's a whole different story but cooking in Russia is 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 pretty weird because there is no English on the or there wasn't then on the ingredients so just trying to shop for the ingredients or talk to the chefs in the kitchens who at that point had never seen a girl in a kitchen. It was a very weird experience. Um, and Moscow itself is is a trip. Um, and then we did the same thing in, in Budapest, the same thing in Madrid and Lisbon. And and you know, trying trying to do this 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 quite an quite an interesting concept of of, you know, I guess diplomats sort of having these these do's that they do, and and we being the cooks, you get to see a, a very different side of things that you're not often exposed to just as a restaurant cook in in London. And uh, I was kind of happy in London, trying, you know, the idea was to go back to South Africa, and then I met my husband, and he was like, "Well, let's try Australia." And honestly, I knew nothing about Australia, like nothing. I I thought tropical weather. Um, uh, you know, it's sunny all the time. Didn't didn't really knew mal, knew a bit from what I read in the Gourmet Traveler, but the Gourmet Traveler never really got to South Africa, so it, it was bits and pieces. Um, so so quite a shock to then come here and, and see this whole new world, um, and and learn real fast. It's been a it's been a massive ten years of just catching up and trying to fit what I am and what cooking is for me into into a new city and my place in in a new country and a new city. Yeah. What is cooking for you? I know with Neighbourhood that was really sort of focused on roasts, but, but Old Palm liquor is completely different. What, what is your style of cooking? Um, so the, the chef school I went to was sort of super French orientated and, and very, very much based on um, the Culinary Institute of America's um, they're sort of uh, the way the way they teach everything from the ground up. The whole French repertoire, starting with stocks and ending with pastry, and then adding extra years or degrees, depending on what you want to specialize in. 
So that was very much my identity um, as, a, as a young cook, was just kind of churning out all this really technique, French technique-inspired stuff. Um, and I stuck to that in South Africa. Then, of course, you get to London and they have their whole their own spin on things and the cooking there is is really quite unique it's this kind of you know neo-british kind of really when when i was cooking in london it was sort of the height of the gastropub kind of era and i was like oh this is i like this like this is kind of more relaxed and you know it's it's not the really uptight kind of stressful cooking for me at, that I was doing. I wanted to sort of do more more, more of a relaxed kind of vibe. And I kind of added that to, to my repertoire, as well as then having grown up in South Africa. And basically, you know, bra is a, is a massive part of, of what we do and how we eat every day and um, a part of our own, our, our own food culture. So I brought all of that here, and then Australia is entirely different. Um, I I don't know what I expected. I thought that there would be more of a um, the gastropub idea that I had in London. I thought that more of it would be really prevalent here, um, but I really underestimated how much of its own entity Australian cooking was. I mean, obviously, super naively, just not knowing anything about Australia because I hadn't traveled to this side of the world. And not um, not taking into account the massive Asian influence that the cooking has here. And I, I loved it. I was like, this is, a, this is amazing. It's so refreshing. It's totally different. And it, it just added a whole nother layer to, to what I do. And then when we opened the new restaurant, I guess I took inspiration from what that space had been before, the sort of really old Melbourne Italian kind of gangster joint, um, a European um, approach to things. And and the fact that I was still super into just kind of doing very European style wine bar stuff <clears throat> that's quite a I guess a universal concept now in in our kind of wine bar world. I guess if you if you will, um, and and I kind of went with that because it it felt safe, and um, it felt like it just felt like it fit the atmosphere, and I was really comfortable with cooking roasts and doing meat cookery. Um, the chef Pete Goffwood, who I worked with in South Africa, that's his whole thing. Like it's just doing sort of big roasts and, and, and lots of butchery and stuff. And, um, yeah, it's kind of evolved now. It's, it's, I think it's more refined now. I work with very good sous chefs there who, who, you know, who basically help me run the place. And I give them loads of, of input. Um, and they, they put their own style on the menu as well. So by now the menu reflects who is running the kitchen who is cooking in the kitchen? Um, it's 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 still a brand, but it's very much the menu is is very reflective of who is cooking for you at the time in the kitchen. Yeah, um, and Old Palm is then just a bit of a you know more of what I sort of grew up with really type of cooking, and and a reflection of of 
I think a, a an exploration I've been doing lately of African um, spices, a lot of uh, things that, that in South Africa took for granted for being around. And I've recently sort of discovered in Melbourne um, spices, you know, long pepper, koririma, lots of kind of Ethiopian and Nigerian influences that are here um, that that I feel are a little bit ignored or they're on, you know, they're on the periphery of the cooking in the city. And I, I wanted to use them because they're here and they're, they're awesome, um, sort of flavors in food as well. And, uh, yeah, kind of just do something, do something a little bit different, but it's, um, it's been hard. And yeah, I guess as many chefs will tell you, fire cookery is a whole, whole different thing <laughs> especially I mean I guess when we when I cook at home I'm just cooking for myself and it's you know I've got a plan I'm going to cook this thing or this meal but service and you know keeping a fire going for hours and hours and hours and that you know the the flavors of the wood and of the grill and trying to teach other people to keep it going at the correct heat that's been that's been the challenge and um, yeah, just not sort of cooking the shit out of something sometimes. <laughs> Can you give us an example of a dish or two that uh, you've cooked on with this new menu at Old Palm Liquor, and, and an example of you know, reaching back to your heritage? Oh, there is oh, there's so many. Um, I think off the top of my head, it's probably. Um, some of the fish dishes that we've cooked where um, in South Africa, for example, we have um, fish that we would uh, braai and then you would, this is, a, this is a very weird thing, I think, if you're not South African, but we have something called snook and you would, you would braai the whole fish and then you would brush it with apricot jam. <laughs> and then you and then you eat it with 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 bread and um I think you eat it with more apricot jam too, depending on where you're from. But anyway, there's a lot of salt involved. So there's obviously the apricot jam, um, which which is originally a Malay flavor influence in South Africa. Um and then the salt is just braai is is obviously everything is liberally salted because it's that sort of trio of smoke and salt and um i think uh i have translated that into cooking kingfish here and not using apricot jam as such because i now think that that is maybe not ideal outside south africa and cultural understanding but i've made um, I've used a Malay spice mix, which which we do fish curries and things with in South Africa, and we've put it on the fish. So you still get that kind of warming, sweet flavor profile, and obviously the the, the thanks to to the Malay um, influence of of kind of how to season the fish and, and complement the fish with a different flavor, but not quite cooking it exactly as it was at home. I mean, there are quite a few dishes from home, babur tea, etc., that that Australians might be familiar with that I feel really just don't translate that well outside South Africa. Um, yeah, and I'm trying to think of another dish now. Generally, I think 
it's more the method of cooking and the combination of flavors um, that I use in the restaurant other than um, specific dishes that I that I try and I guess replicate in 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 the restaurant it's more the style that I'm trying to um, that I'm trying to replicate and try that I'm influenced by on the menu here yeah how has this period of time been for you personally has it has it changed you as a chef um I'd say yes I I'd say I I in the beginning of lockdown I just creativity just went out the window I just couldn't I couldn't think I was just sort of like I kind of felt quite dull I was like uh, just I think like a lot of chefs I I never considered or I'd never done takeaway in the 20 years I've been cooking it was just not something that I've I've ever been exposed to um and and it was super daunting and then <laughs> we had no choice so I think it was a bit of a like I had, I had no choice but to to turn my my thinking inside out and think differently about what I'm selling and kind of leave that passionate, creative person, you know, to the side for a bit and just go, how am I going to sell a product to stay alive? Um, and Simon, uh, Marsman Simon is super good at thinking on his feet and he sort of sometimes just had to kind of drag me through it and go, that's a good idea, but it just doesn't work. And you just take the idea and turn it into something that we can, that will work, that'll sell, that'll translate when someone opens a box um, after it's been, you know, driven somewhere. And that's that's been very hard. And I think I think it will forever probably change how I think about. Um, how I design something and then how someone else perceives it on the other end, which was always really important to me. I never wanted to design food that was just really um, photographic and kind of sort of stunned. I really wanted something where people ate it and it they just sort of had a, they had a good time or it reminded them of something. Um, super happy if they said that it reminded them of their, their grandmother's cooking. Hopefully, if their grandmother was a was a good cook, and um, I think I think this is this is really kind of galvanized how I think about how someone else that I have no connection with is going to perceive what I decided to design. Yeah, I think I think I don't think that'll change. I think I've I've taken it on board, and I'm I'm going to work with that now. Yeah. Your venues are very reliant on, you know, groups of people enjoying great energy and um, and experiences in a really noisy, rowdy sort of room. How do you feel about those restaurant models moving forward, given what we've just been through? Huh. Um, I don't know. I've keenly been watching um, what's been happening in in America um, to see how it, like it, it, if how restaurants are adapting to this and whether you can still really create that atmosphere of conviviality and um that rowdiness with so you know with with restrictions around which which I think creates sort of a 
um, an unconscious stress in our minds. So obviously, not not everyone's having the amount of carefree fun that they that they might have had before. Um, I think temporarily we're we're going to have to get used to things being a little bit different, um, but we'll we'll get there eventually. Again, I think it'll it's just going to take much longer than anyone is probably feels like or is comfortable with. But I'd rather take a little bit longer and 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 sort of do it safely than go back into another shutdown, another lockdown, which uh, another one, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how many people can sort of face that. And um this it's obviously the the square meterage model is is not ideal like we'll have to carry on with takeaway for quite some time because restaurants just restaurants need to be packed for more for more for more reasons than than just conviviality like we need to to you know you need to get loads of customers all the time and I don't know. I'm, I'm interested to see what they come up this weekend. What sort of roadmap they come up with to um, to get us to get us out of this um, safely. You mentioned you've been keeping your eye on the US. Do you think there is an opportunity for more outdoor dining, like we've seen in cities like New York, as we move towards summer? Um, I would love to see that. Actually, um, I don't know. I don't know with you know if you open restaurants here you're so aware of all the council restrictions everywhere like that there are so many restrictions about what you're allowed to do on a footpath and you know what you're allowed to do around your restaurant and I councils are really going to have to relax a lot if we are going to apply something like that here um but I think um, speaking to to a friend that I have in Canada, they've gone out of their way to help restaurants to just increase their dining areas just a little bit. And why would we not if we're going into summer? It obviously depends where your restaurant is. I mean, we're on Ligon Street and we're on Nicholson Street. I'm not sure how how much we can sort of add that to our offering. But why not in the city? They've been hurting for for so long now. There's I'm sure they can come up with something that sort of suits everyone. And and Australia's summer is, is is glorious to be outside. So I really hope they come up with some kind of modified idea. Yeah, it's a, it's a great opportunity. Um yeah, I really hope that they that they take some of that on board. Um because we're going to need something extraordinary. And I mean that is extraordinary to to think that the people are doing that. that if you look at how cities work today, um, there's a reason there are, there are council restrictions and all that. But it's going to take an extraordinary effort from from the people who run cities to to make the city work again and to make cities exciting and vibrant again. So I really hope they they do something like that. Um, I, I certainly think if they everyone decided to work together, that there is some room, some room for that, yeah. It's been a challenging period, but has there been some positives to come out of this for you? Um, yeah, I think <laughs> I think all the, the sort of challenges that you, that you kind of have to sort of navigate um, 
in in a career in I mean I've stuck to the same career now for a super long time and everything that you go through that you absolutely hated after after a while you're like you you know you have an opportunity to look at it and go oh that's what I learned from that and it sucked and I I really don't want to do it again but you take something from everything if you if you care to and uh, I hope that in the future <laughs> that is the case with this um yeah, and I really consider myself um, an introvert, but it turns out that after so many lockdowns, even introverts need to hang out with other people. <laughs> so maybe that was maybe that was the lesson in it for me personally. Yeah, amazing. Well, Alma, so good to catch up with you today, and really loved hearing your story. Um, hopefully, we get some good news and a and a clear roadmap. Um, this weekend from the premiere but we've loved having you on deep in the weeds and um, stay in touch and we'll chat again soon thanks for having me keep well this is the deep in the weeds podcast i'm anthony huckstep stay tuned as we share the stories of australia's hospo community suppliers and producers in search of hope during this pandemic special thanks to executive producer rob Locke for making this all happen follow us on instagram at Deep in the Weeds podcast or email us at podcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay safe and be well.